Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Afago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, our interview with Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord from the Reagan National Defense Forum. But first, the United States Army yesterday selected Bell's V-280 Valor tilt-rotor aircraft as the winner of the service's future long-range assault aircraft competition, beating the Defiant X aircraft by Lockheed Martin, Sikorsky, and Boeing. Bell was awarded a $1.3 billion contract of which the first increment is $232 million uh, over the coming 19 months to develop the new aircraft uh, with the uh, next phase uh, of the effort, the low rate initial production phase valued at $7 billion and the program overall is valued uh, at more than $70 billion into the coming uh, decades. Joining us to discuss the win and what it means for the future of Army aviation and the companies involved that constitute America's helicopter, or I should perhaps better uh, say vertical lift industrial base, are two of our regular weekly business roundtable panelists, uh, Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, uh, joining us from the very same conference uh, in Toronto. Uh, guys, thanks so very much for joining us and welcome back. It's great to be here, Vargo. Greetings from the Great White North, Vago. <laughs> yes, uh, in, in, indeed. Our great friend uh, to the North. Uh, always always a pleasure being in Canada and hope you guys are having a good time. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. North of Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan Forum uh, were sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Um, guys, again, uh, welcome uh, back. Uh, there was an expectation uh, that Bell would win. We discussed that uh, on the program, even though uh, it is it is not a helicopter. Uh, we don't know whether or not Lockheed and Boeing uh, are going to protest, although the expectation is that they will. Uh, why, why wouldn't they uh, in order... Uh, to uh, at least feel like they're getting their share because uh, it is a big deal if you're the person who makes Blackhawks and something else other uh, than your product was selected. Um, the Army called this future vertical rift, lift for a reason. They were trying to make it clear that the answer wasn't necessarily a helicopter. And the Army has said, and, and the current chief of staff, uh, who uh, is an aviator, uh, said uh, consistently he wanted something that could go fast uh, and far. Uh, and the V-280 demonstrated uh, that um, in uh, testing. Uh, Richard, why don't you start us off? What, what does this win uh, mean more broadly? You know, I've spoken to a couple of people who said, look, I mean, this suggests that uh, the service is trying to innovate. It is looking at future threats in the Pacific. You need to go far and fast, and, and that's uh, important. And wingborne flight um, makes that possible. Again, decades ago, the Army was considering being part of V-22, so there's always been a little group in the Army that's thought, uh, this is the right approach. What does it mean from your perspective, given how also how different this airplane is than a V-22? Yeah, you know, that's that's right. Uh, there are many things going on here. As you say, the biggest takeaway is the reinvention of the Army. Uh, I think without 
uh, a capability like this, they would have lost relevance in the most important uh, geopolitical arena pretty quickly. Um, basically, I think a lot depends upon their ability to deploy long-range precision fires to the Western Pacific and because of the Key West Agreement that basically prohibits them from having any kind of meaningful horizontal takeoff lift. In other words, they can't have their own C-17 fleet, thanks to Key West. This is uh, what they can get that gives them a, a degree of speed and range and therefore organic deployability. Uh, so this allows for their reinvention. I think that's pretty pretty big. Um, it's also, you know, a step forward for aviation. It's it's considerably more advanced than the V-22, uh, particularly with the engine rotation, you know, not happening. It's just, it's, it's, it's a little more simplified, a little more maintainable. Um, and, you know, it looks like it'll cost significantly less than the uh, V-22 as well. Obviously, this is meaningful from a broader uh, industry standpoint. I guess we'll talk about that some more. But, you know, the most important thing is that it's a, a, a very important win for a company that looks like it was kind of fading out in the world of rotorcraft. So I think there's an awful lot going on here. Definitely is a lifeline uh, for uh, uh, Bell and was existential if you uh, talk to the senior leadership, whether at the company or at uh, its parent, uh, Textron. Um, Ron, uh, give us give us your sense on on what you think uh, this means, uh, how it changes the marketplace, and more importantly, lead us off on the conversation about what it means for the industrial base, which now actually looks like it might have three healthy competitors in it going forward. Yeah, I mean, I mean from an industrial base perspective. Um, it would have been difficult for for Bell without this. Um, I you know I don't think it was completely existential, but it would have been difficult for them. Um, there are other future uh, contracts program wins potentially down the road. Uh, Farah is one of them, among others. There's uh, other services too, uh, but but for sure, I mean it, it distributes around the industrial base, uh, the wealth. Um, I would say also it's you know, when you think about from an army perspective, it's a big change for the army, right? I mean, operating turboprop, excuse me, operating uh, uh, tilt rotors is different than operating helicopters, uh, and and most likely this probably means also um, that this isn't a solution for everything the army is going to need to do, right? I mean, it'll, it'll solve part of the army future lift conundrum, uh, but it probably also means that the army is going to buy some more helicopters in the future for kind of the down and dirty work that helicopters do. Um, so, you know, from that, that point of view, it's, um, it is, it is, it is what it is. You know, it's, it's, it's a good day for Textron. If you look at the market, Textron's up about uh, 6% on a day when the S&P is down a percent. Um, Lockheed's about in line with the market and down a percent. And uh, interestingly enough, kind of the, probably the biggest loser here is probably, probably Boeing, right? Um, and Lockheed does have content on the V280 in terms of electronics and electronic warfare stuff and, and some sensors uh, where Boeing doesn't really have much of anything on it. So on this downslick, really the, the, the odd man out uh, is, is Boeing. Uh, and uh, Richard, I uh, want to get you, uh, your kind of industrial base uh, take, right? I mean, uh, Boeing will have the Chinook franchise. There's nothing else that replaces it. Uh, you know, Sikorsky does have uh, the Black Hawk, which is still the most popular helicopter of its class, and the Army will still need them. It's building 53K. Uh, and now, presumably, you will have Bo you'll have Bell, who's going to use this money for you know V two forty seven and a lot of other things the company wants to do. Walk us through sort of the industrial based contours of this uh, and what it means more broadly, or not. I would have been somewhere between existential and not. I mean, you look at for for text for Bell. I mean, you look at 
what had been winding down, obviously, V-22, UH-1Y, AH-1Z. Uh, notably, what, what percent of their profits had been coming from the Marines for a couple decades now? Uh, 90, 95%, something like that. So they were facing a real problem because the civil market's not that big and they're just number three there. Um, obviously, this gives them a heck of a great franchise. Uh, so they're in for the long haul. And as you say, Boeing still in the game with Apaches and 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 um and chinooks but i'd also point out yeah ron's right i mean none of this and and other and other factors are just not reflecting well on the company's ability to win a contract here obviously obviously past performance is being taken into account um lockheed martin sikorsky they're just going to keep going with yes blackhawks and, and ch53 kilos and now of course they've become the florida program enemy number one they're going to be lobbying to make this as delayed or whatever as possible. Uh, also, don't forget the industrial base, the rest of the industrial base. Um, this is the second really big win for Rolls-Royce, uh, particularly Rolls-Royce North America. Obviously, the parent company back in Britain has taken more body blows than arguably any other aerospace company. But Rolls-Royce North America, the enormous B-52 re-engineering contract, and now this contract, um, it's, uh, I think we've seen this before, but Rolls-Royce especially proves that for some legacy European kind of contractors, uh, really just <laughs> America offers, it, it's the land of opportunity in so many right. ways. So basically Rolls-Royce is being saved by British defense contracts in, in, in one way or another. And of course, lots of other companies like Spirit are benefiting from this too. There aren't that many new DOD program launches. Uh, so the people who are part of this have every reason to be thrilled. And it would seem as though the win does validate Mitch Snyder's strategy to completely reinvent uh, the company and how it does everything from engineering to production uh, and indeed the image of the company to position itself as something other than just the V-22 guy or, you know, uh, the, the the Huey or helicopter guy. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. It's a remarkable turnaround and a reinvention. Some pe people who, uh, you know, have the custodianship of companies that are clearly uh, heading down just say, all right, we're going to harvest the revenue from the existing, you know, programs and, of course, fleets. And they go gently into that good night. And some people do succeed in turning things around. And uh, I think Pratt and Whitney back in the 90s and early 2000s with the geared to turbo fan remarkable story and this will probably represent another remarkable story too uh, Ron yeah I, I don't want to be Debbie Downer but I will maybe a little bit um, one of the concerns that's been raised to me by folks in the, in the helicopter community is that you know, there is a risk that this could go down that path that Comanche went down that you know we obviously we hope that that doesn't happen but that you know this really goes all the way gets to goes through LRIP into full production and, and, and we get all the way down there. Um, but that was one risk that was raised to me um, by folks I know in the helicopter world. As with any big change, the helicopter community is, you know, the same resistance, right? I mean, the old joke uh, in the army, you know, when Blackhawk was fielded and it had its problems uh, was that it'll be a, it'll be a Huey that hauls, uh, you know, the last Blackhawk to the boneyard. You know, I mean, F-18, you know, F-14 guys didn't like the F-18. F-18 guys don't like the F-35. If you're a Blackhawk or Jayhawk uh, or a Seahawk flyer, you don't want to fly anything else. COD guys don't want to fly V-22s. Um, I mean, I think it's sort of a consistent change story. I think Comanche, with all due respect, was very different. Um, and there were a whole bunch of legitimate questions about whether or not a stealth helicopter can really work in the environment, you know, at scale with that kind of mass. Uh, at a time when you just no longer needed a stealthy helicopter that was developed for the full the gap scenario. 
right? I mean, I think it's a little bit of a different thing. Whereas in this particular case, um, it's different. And I've covered for 30 years the battle between the tilt rotor advocates uh, who even in the early 1990s wanted the army to go in that direction. Um, and, and those who just were like, hey, look, you know, we should stay with Helleborn flight. Um, and, and that's what the army does. And indeed, you're still going to have that. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens to FARA, uh, because there was a sense that that program would go away, whereas now it looks like uh, it uh, might actually survive at a, at a different level. Anyway, we're going to talk more about this on Sunday's program. Uh, guys, thanks very much uh, for the update. Really appreciate it. Uh, have a great week. Uh, bon voyage and see you back uh, on the program on Sunday. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Vago. Looking forward to chatting on Sunday. Yeah, same here, Vago. Thanks and best from Canada. While at the Reagan National Defense Forum at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library and Museum in Simi Valley, California, we had the opportunity to interview Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord, who held the same position in the Obama administration and is regarded as one of the most experienced budget minds in Washington. Here's our wide-ranging conversation with Undersecretary McCord. Uh, sir, it's an honor and pleasure uh, seeing you again. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Good morning. Good to be here, Vago. Um, so uh, at the risk of uh, devolving into a uh, need for psychological counseling, almost every single time you and I have ever spoken in both of your terms as comptroller has involved the words continuing resolution. Uh, and most of it, unfortunately, was scarred and, and it, by the Budget Control Act. Um, we are now again in CR uh, territory. Um, you know, the question always is, how do we break this cycle of violence and get to a sense of normalcy? From your standpoint, how are you guys preparing for it? What are the cases you're making? And what's your best guess estimate on where we end up uh, in this process and how do we navigate it so that it doesn't become sort of a fool year endeavor, which some people think, unfortunately, it might become? Yeah, one, one difference now that I'm back in my second tour is, is the realistic prospect of full-year CR, something never contemplated before. And obviously, we've, we've moved a long way from where I started, where CRs were a week or two while people were actively working things. And now we have devolved straight to the 10, 11-week, middle-of-December thing as the opening gambit, which is a bad place to be, um, not to get bogged down in stats. But as, as you probably know, we, we've, we've lost one-third of the last dozen years to CR. So four years out of 12, we've been treading water while the PRC is swimming, you know, and that's just not a good place to be. Uh, we've messaged out. I thought Secretary put out a good letter about a week or so ago. hope you saw that. Uh, talked about the problems with the CR. And I'm, I'm optimistic, cautiously optimistic. Should I say that's too much of a cliche, but optimistic that the, uh, the committees can get it done, not by the 16th. I don't think that's possible at this point, but by the end of the calendar year before everything turns into a pumpkin and has to be redone as a whole new bill with whole new people. Uh, I've been hearing, of course, this for some months that this was going to work, um, and we haven't seen it work yet, but I do hear that the committees are, are at it now. I don't know that we have an agreed framework which is what we really need, but but the committees are, are moving out to get some of the some of the machinery working that has to happen in time. It's uh, beyond our ability to, to change the whole dynamics in the town that lead to this situation, right? And it is a cycle we do need to break of late finish means late start, means late <laughs> propenses you to another late finish the next year. Um, divided government can work. We've seen that. You've seen that. I've seen that. Uh, we haven't seen enough of it, but but we know that there's a model out there for people that remember and want to and take that lesson of not just positioning for the next election, but to, to get stuff done. And uh, if that's the case, 
we, we can break the cycle and get going. Um, what are uh, some of the things? So it's a two-part uh, question. I'm going to ask you something similar here uh, about uh, the potential for another Budget Control Act uh, situation because a debt ceiling increase looked like it was a certitude. Now it's looking a lot less uh, certain. Uh, and you were the hostage that ended up getting shot in that instance. What are some of the things you're doing now to prepare uh, for what could be an even more protracted CR uh, and a very, very uncertain fiscal environment at a time when you're not only trying to step up uh, the game uh, against China, but also putting through enormous amounts of Ukraine aid, which I want to discuss with you in a minute as well. How are you preparing for this intermediate period, and if things go really bad, that it's a protracted period of time on a CR? Yeah, we have been, I've been talking to OMB about what our position would be and what are the things that we would, our top list of ask for an extended CR. But of course, point one, priority one is always not an extended CR. So, so we don't, we're not going to get into that. We're not going to send anything to Congress anytime soon, probably of what needs to go in a full year CR because that's, now you're starting to negotiate, you know, the train wreck and we don't want to be doing that. But if we get into that situation, it's going to be a short list of broad, Priorities, not not a hundred rifle shots, because that will never work. You know, not not to fix a hundred problems. In terms, of what would what would those be? Oh, we're talking about m very large, flexible ability for the department. Me, in other words, to move money around. If you're if you're at a smaller top line, however, that's that's fixing problems. That's damage control. That's not actually getting after the strategy in the way we want to. But that would be a necessity. You know, for example, to avoid riffing people. Right. I mean, so you need to be able to move money into personnel to avoid those kind of things and to cover down on the pay raise. But you can't get after a lot of the progress that's in place. And that's one of the points that the secretary made in his letter just recently, right, is that we had we talked about having the largest R&D budget ever, the largest procurement budget ever. That means new initiatives, but you can't do new stuff under CR. Debt ceiling is a, whole, it's a different level of badness, right? Uh, I often compare it to to a, a, to the very – what often people are familiar with is the worst cases of government shutdown where – I got no money in my checking account as the comptroller. Debt ceiling is a different situation. I might have money, my bank is shut down, right? <laughs> you can't, 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 can't get any money out of my bank. Um, we, we don't have a lot of ability other than to make the case of how bad that would be for national security. To, we're not in the middle of that conversation about the debt ceiling, of course, as the Defense Department. And we don't know the X date. We're not, we're not, class, we're not, we're not cleared for that information. Treasury has that. Um, I will leave it to others to say whether they think in retrospect the BCA did some good things or, or what its impact was on the deficit reduction apart from the economy changing, which is always the big driver. But I will say it was terrible for the Department of Defense. It was terrible for managing the Department of Defense. It was terrible for budgeting the Department of Defense. It was terrible. It was bad for readiness. And we would absolutely not want to go back to that. Uh, I agree with your assessment that, that um, I'm not seeing any signs that this is going to happen in December, which would take as I understand it, consume a good bit of the month with procedural things of doing two bills to do this in a 51-vote Senate scenario. So that leaves us with it's going to have to be negotiated and part of a bipartisan way of, of working across divided government, and it's going to be a big test case. I'm, I'm not nearly as optimistic on that as I am on the fact that an appropriation bill can get done. I think, I think an appropriation bill can get done for 23, but that could still mean that in starting on 24 and out, we're into BCA round two, we're son of BCA. I think that'd be a, a really bad outcome for us. I mean, I'm speaking in the abstract here, right? Because maybe someone would negotiate a BCA that has every dollar that the secretary wants, but that's not how it's likely to work. So 
we don't have a lot of ability other than to message the impacts on us and maybe point people back to the history of how hard it was in the previous BCA. You never knew where your top line was going. If I can do hand pictures on a podcast, right, we would have a top line, a proposal that went like this, a five-year proposal went like this, but the law, the BCA would, say, would be like down here. And every time we'd end up in between after months of slogging, never with any more, at best we got a year and a half of certainty, like the, the, the top line of year X late, and an agreement on X plus one. And then we go, then the gulf will be even bigger of, well, okay, but the BCA says you're going to then plummet, but you want to go and keep rising. And uh, that's, that's just uh, really inimical, inimical to where we're trying to go with a strategy that has some consistency and some long-range focus, which you need uh, to compete with China. You need that long-range focus. So it, it, it couldn't be more uh, antithetical to where we're trying to go. But again, we're, we're not going to be in the room when, when debt ceiling is dealt with, I don't think, as a Defense Department. You um, are uh, one of a long line of comptrollers, and every comptroller I've ever known has a very strong planning ability and a longer-term uh, ability, uh, given that the future year's defense plan also goes into the DPP, right? I mean, so you guys are really looking uh, 20 years uh, uh, forward at almost any given time. Are there any preparations, contingency planning uh, that you and the senior team are doing uh, in the event that, that the train manages to hit a wall? Short answer, no. We're, we, are, we are trying to make the case for what we think is needed, not, not to manage to, a, a, you know, an arbitrary BCA-imposed top line. In fact, we didn't do that last time, right? We, we proposed budgets, routinely proposed budgets that exceeded the BCA unless it was the second year of a two-year deal where the president had just agreed this is what we're getting for the next year. So absent that, I'd, I don't see us reorienting, reorienting, reorienting our defense planning to, uh, to a flat top line or decreasing top line, absent it actually being the law of the land and getting direction from the president to do so. Um, I want to take you to uh, inflation. So not only do you have this challenge of a CR and a potential that there could be another uh, budgetary train wreck, as we're still waiting for the NDAA uh, to uh, really, I mean, over the course of my career, the, the just the absurdity of the situation we find ourselves in is is just sort of beyond it. Although now I'm beginning to think that for half of my career, we've lived in political absurdity, uh, right, uh, where it's actually become n normal. Um, you know, you uh, testified uh, on inflation where you said, look, I mean, a lot of the contracts we have are much longer term contracts, so it does insulate the department a bit. But when you talk to industry, you know, they point out, look, I mean, it's seven point uh, something percent. Uh, manpower costs are higher. Material costs are higher. Uh, and ultimately, a lot of companies have come to you for redress. Um, what does the department, how much of an adjustment does the department need? Because you're familiar with a lot of the uh, reporting that's gone on and the analysis that actually this is taking huge chunks. I mean, 7% out of uh, the Pentagon's budget is a pretty significant amount. What's the inflation impact and how much redress does the department need uh, on this? Because it does fall outside the purview of the department. It falls outside the purview of industry uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we, we made some steps in the budget. I know people maybe don't, don't think that we did enough, but we, we, we did build a good $20 billion a year increase into our top line for 23 across the 23 budget for inflation that was known at the, at the time we were finishing, which was a year ago today. 
things changed since then. Secretary admitted that or acknowledged that in testimony that, you know, as things continue to evolve, we're going to try and work with the committees. And we've done that. We provided them with, with information about where we see inflation from the top down. So the, the interesting thing about inflation, you know, it's first of all, it was sort of a non-factor in most people's minds for many years. If it's 2% a year or so for year after year after year, that you sort of lose the muscle memory of how you think about it and work it because it's not that big a deal. And so when we've had this spike, we first of all had to relearn sort of how, how to think about it, where to find it, how to budget for it. Um, and one of the things that you know, has been a challenge is that people look to the CPI, which is not represent the market basket of things that we buy. Our inflation's probably been closer to five in the last year than seven or seven and a half, but that's still a significant number multiplied by the, the size of our funding. But we, so we can see where it should be from the top down, looking at the factors that we get from agriculture department on food prices for our subsistence allowance, for housing prices, for our housing allowance, fuel. Pretty easy to figure out fuel prices, right? Um, and fortunately, they've been going down. Right. And, and those are the things where we've had the best luck working with Congress because those are the things everyone can wrap their heads around, the fuel price, the housing, housing allowance, subsistence allowance. The harder part, which is where you started, is, is in, in the 400 to $450 billion of contracts for goods and services we have with the private sector from IT to ships, airplanes, every, every kind of thing that we're buying, right? Where we know where the contracts, contracting dollars are. You, you take these inflation rates that come down from, from the economic experts, you know, top down, do the math and say, okay, well, there should be this much in O&M Army and that much in, in shipbuilding and, you know, a third amount in missile procurement Air Force. Where we're, where we're struggling a bit is then I don't have a list of itemized bills, contract by contract. I, I say the department, bill a plant. The whole community is, is lacking the absolute details to, sh to marry up from the bottom up inflation at the contract specific level for contracts that even allow it to be a negotiable item, right, which is not all contracts, compared to the top down. And so this is where we're running into skepticism, which I understand from, from our appropriator friends in particular uh, who would ask me, um, not just rhetorically, <laughs> uh, why should I write you a check when you can't give me a bill? So I can give them a bill, math-driven, GDP deflator went from A to B, multiply that by the amount of purchases in, in missile procurement Air Force, here's the number. But that's not what they're looking for. They're looking for how do I know that you exactly need it on this contract versus that contract within missile procurement Air Force, and that's where we still don't have the data. So that's a challenge. What we can do, however, is, is continue to try and negotiate with OMB in building our program to do the best we can because it always works better when Congress can kind of see a proposal from us and react to it. What, we're, what we've been doing in the last couple of months is kind of, is kind of um, conversing with them about if the top line is going up, as was re referenced early in the breakfast today about, uh, you know, the top line, it looks like a second year. It was sort of described at the breakfast as a fact, which has already happened, which is not true. But if it's going to happen, we've advised that inflation is a high priority of ours, addressing the inflation that occurred since we built our budget, because it allows us to execute the program that we presented to you, you know, more effectively and efficiently and uh, with greater probability of success than if we are absorbing inflation inside that. So that's been that's been a top priority. It's, it's not an unfunded priority exactly, but it's trying to make sure that we can do what you already what you already are expecting us to do. I think the budget's been pretty well received. 
I don't think the top line increases are indicative that they don't think we're on the right track with the strategy and that the, the, the money added has been kind of at the margins, has not been any kind of fundamental redirection of our strategy. But the inflation issue is an important one to allow us to actually get after that and execute it. And that's where uh, Comptroller is in particular is, try, is actually trying to execute the contract and, and you know, the program after the fact if it turns out that you're short. Um, let me uh, take you to the uh, issue of uh, Ukraine. Um, many senior leaders did not want to be supporting Ukraine, uh, not for emotional reasons, but that any additional money that the department gets has to go toward prepare, better preparing for China, whether it's fulfilling munitions, shortfalls, accelerating weapons programs, uh, and, and making new investments. Uh, B-21 was, was just rolled out, so congratulations, because you helped make that happen in, in multiple tenures, uh, your two tenures in the job, uh, as well as your years as, as, uh, as, as Bob Hale's deputy. Um, talk to us a little bit about how much money you are going to need Additionally, members talk about this all the time, that we're going to work a supplemental for the department to try to cover weapons procurements, for example, refill arsenals. Um, you guys are working that. Bill Plan is working it. Heidi Shu is. Each one of the service secretaries are working that as well. The unders are working it. Uh, and how do we do it better and smarter, right? I mean, not necessarily buy a lot of the same maybe outdated stuff we've been pulling from inventory, but also try to do it at speed and scale. That means commitments to contracts, for example. From, from your standpoint, how much money will be required to refill that which you will need, not only to continue deterring against Russia, but also the Chinese know how to count as well, right? And we are being honest about what it is we're short of, uh, and I believe they probably read some of this stuff or listen to it, right? What is the amount that you're discussing with lawmakers as part of the senior leadership team about what the department is going to need and how quickly you're going to need it and how much flexibility you're going to need to try to do what you're trying to do, much of it under existing contracts as opposed to renegotiating new contracts? Yeah, that's, that's a great line of questioning. Um, I think Ukraine has been, you could argue maybe a follow-on from COVID in terms of, of highlighting that the, the just-in-time, lean-as-possible globalized model that everybody had has got, has got some soft underbellies, perhaps, uh, when, when things go badly. And... Um, with respect to Ukraine and munitions in particular, uh, the question that came up this morning about in the survey about is it worth it, I think to me is honestly is a no-brainer. Uh, the cost of the United States if Putin prevails here are going to be enormous, uh, and, and what happens in Ukraine isn't going to stay in Ukraine, which is why people were connecting it, have been, have been connecting it since it started to what, what messages is she getting about Taiwan. With respect to the munitions specifically, um, it's a complicated situation. In the near term, we've been talking to the committees about putting in what's max executable in the near term, which is not everything one might want, right? But, but it's, it's, it's kind of pointless to ask them to put in $5 billion to build, you know, to buy more, more javelins or stingers or AMRAM or, or whatever if it can't possibly be produced in the next year or two. So we're trying to be realistic there, working with the acquisition community. And then the the medium term step is expanding the industrial base and we've been putting investments in our ukraine funding supplementals and and even using some of our ukraine drawdown replenishment funds to put some investments in the industrial base on on the mostly on the army side right because that's what's got the nexus to ukraine right now is the 155 and things like that but from the deputy secretary in particular we've been having having a lot of meetings in the building uh, integrating across the services and, and, and Bill LaPlante's organization and, and with Bill's people in the lead, of course, on 
taking these lessons and if you could put yourself in the time machine, what would you have wanted to do five years ago if you knew you were going to be in the situation today and now thinking about Taiwan for tomorrow, what can we do? What is what is complicated? I know the question has have, has been asked. Um, everybody gets that the question is complicated, but the answer is still kind of being formulated right of you've got to replenish our own, replenish what we've given to the Ukrainians. We've got to make some increases in our own industrial base. What would what would be useful for partners, including but not limited to, tai, to Taiwan, that we might buy as a department? This is a proposal the department has formulated in the last couple of months to have a fund of exportable versions that we could have. And then there's the FMS lane, which already exists, but, but requires State Department funding as well. Trying to rationalize all those four, given given that some of the same sub-tiers, you know, the, like the propellants or whatever, it doesn't matter whether it's for the Army or for the Air Force, even if the end item list for Ukraine and the end item list for Taiwan are two different lists, they, they, they start to merge in, in the sub, you know, the suppliers and some of the second tiers of the industrial base, and it's all coming to the one industrial base. I would say that that, that is a problem everyone's still working, trying to figure out exactly what is executable and how fast we can increase capacity. The need to increase capacity and capability in this area, I think, is pretty manifest now. Uh, not that anyone's predicting that, that a future fight will look exactly like Ukraine. They never do, right? But it, it's shown the volume of, of, of fires in a high-end conflict, which is not, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan were different animals than this. Uh, so uh, just to be clear, there's no sort of direct bread box number, right? There's no... 50 billion would scratch that itch, 60, 25, there, there's no number you're gonna yet? see a proposal in, in our next budget in, in FITUP, of a, you're, you're going to see a move on industrial base funding. for it, it will manifest as increased production rates of missiles in particular and also some industrial base investment in, in the facilities themselves. Um, but that is, that is where we are now. I, I think that we're going to continue to try and improve on that. But that's going to take some additional, I think, thought and thought and work across the community. Um, so you're going to see, a, just like this budget had some moves on parts of the industrial base, like casting and foraging, batteries, microelectronics. Munitions will probably be the story of the next industrial base expansion, starting with the Ukraine supplementals now, and then moving into the 24 budget as we're going to get beyond, again, the things that are have a direct nexus to Ukraine, which is all that should be in, a, in an emergency supplemental, to the broader... Taiwan and other partners look. Uh, so you're going you're gonna to see a plus up, and it's going to have you know, a B after the number, Bs after the number, but it's not the last word. Um, you know, everybody, Mike, has a tendency of focusing uh, on, on the military lessons of the war and trying to absorb them about what it means on the battlefield and what a precision fire is in the use of unmanned systems and how all of those lessons of that war better prepare us to either deter or to better fight China. But one of the things which I'm curious about is that, you know, no bucks, no buck Rogers. You're an integral player in making all of this happen. And the speed with which extraordinary amounts of money are, are moving, moving from the Treasury to the Department to industry, uh, to our allies and partners. Uh, what are some of the lessons you and your team are learning? Because God forbid there's a conflict with China, you become one of the most important players in that in terms of directing the resources at scale and speed in order to try to get things done. What are some of the lessons you guys are learning about moving money, moving it flexibly, moving it smartly, especially at a time when Republican members are saying, you know, well, we're going to launch all manner of audits uh, on the department, for example, on how this money is being spent? Yeah, first of all, I would say just on the last point that 
the most serious concerns I've seen about where the money's being spent tend to go not so much on the money, but on the end-use monitoring and it, it, what are the possibilities that some weapons will find their way to the black market or those kind of concerns as opposed to what are we spending the money on, which we report on pretty extensively to the committees. Uh, to the Senator Fisher's point this morning, not all of those are, are open source because not every you know not every not everything can be. And that also goes with allied contributions. Not all allies want their contributions to Ukraine to be visible to the Russians. Um, but to me, a big lesson on Ukraine, uh, you've probably heard the secretary talk in terms of his, his priorities of defending the nation, succeeding through teamwork, taking care of people. The teamwork part is not just a phrase with him. And so one of the things that's really been helpful to me is that when we, he does his huddles a couple times a week, with UCOM, with the chairman. Uh, these are global things. So everybody that's playing from Cybercom to Transcom, SOCOM, is, is in these meetings, But as are Bill LaPlante and I. So this is not something all, all of my bosses would have done, I think, to make sure that I know in real time what we're trying to do today, what we're trying to do tomorrow, next week. I, I get to read out where I am and what I'm working on and, and where I see the funding with the Hill. So at the same time, I'm hearing from UCOM commanders and the secretary's hearing from them what's happening on the ground. We're looking at what's happening in cyberspace. We're, we're keeping an eye on their triad. Um, so the secretary brings everybody together. So I think that's a good, a good model for us. Um, the other thing that I think needs to be a model more broadly uh, and, and a theme I want to bring to this conference, I think, is the, is the distinction maybe between what's urgent and what's important. Um, Everyone, I think everyone, well, I shouldn't say everyone, because like the poll, the polling that we saw this morning, not everybody supports what we're doing in Ukraine, although the majority do and perceive it to be in our interest, right? But um, when we've asked Congress for help on this, we've gotten it very quickly so far, right? Three times. You, because they see Ukraine needs ammunition. They're in a fight, right, against a much bigger, more aggressive country next door. And the lessons for me are, first of all, that the the response has been, there are ask as an administration has been kind of whole of government, which I know has become, sounds like a cliche phrase after 20, 30 years, but whole of government. So we've had, we've asked for security assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, and, and sanctions and diplomacy. So those kind of basic tool set. But when we ask, we've gotten some of these in like two weeks, right, from when we've asked to when we've gotten Congress to act. But yet when we, when we step back to the long comp global competition with China, how do we start off this conversation? Three months late, four months late, five months late, six months late seems to be okay. And that's, I think, where we've got to move people to. That's important. It may not seem urgent to you. Maybe they'll never seem a day unless and until there's an invasion of the Taiwan Straits or something that really, you know, is the bucket of cold water in the face that seem, makes it seem as urgent as Ukraine. And yet we need to address, start addressing it that way. But I think the process that we have um, is, is a decent process. It's just the scale, you know, as you know, it's, it's going to be a lot different there um, for, for Ukraine, or I'm sorry, for, for, for some of these scenarios involving, involving uh, PACOM. And that, that takes more build, right? It, t it takes more long-term effort. And it takes more positioning. The other difference, of course, is, that, well, we hope, we hope to not have that to actually be in a conflict stage either way. Ukraine's pretty fascinating because the amount of effort that's going into something where we're not actually a belligerent, we're not a party to the conflict, we're, we're a, you know, a trainer, advisor, helper, supplier, moral support, economic support, but we're not actually in the fight. And yet the amount of time and senior, senior leader time and effort that it takes has been uh, really eye-opening. I mean, th this is, this is a, a major investment. And, and yet 
I know that many people might say, well, does this mean your strategy was off? Your strategy says China's number one, yet, you know, it looks like Russia's the problem of the day. Well, we don't, we don't think so. And I'm, you've probably heard the secretary say this a bunch of times, right, that Russia's a threat. No one ever mistook Putin for our friend. So this was not, is not, you know, mean, though, that China still is not the primary one with the economic ambition and economic power, global ambition to, to challenge us. So we're going to have to up our game. And I think Ukraine illustrates that, right, um, in, terms of the, in terms of the investments and the, and the speed of high end conflict and and it's going to be a while before everybody fully digests the lessons of you know drones versus tanks and all the things that have been pretty interesting to watch but um i think that we actually have some pretty good processes to build on now but one of those processes that needs to improve is again this this idea of getting getting our larger funding bills enacted on time to address a problem, that's the, and the problem seems to be pretty well understood at this point. We've talked, how many times have we heard today already about the CHIPS Act? I mean, people get that this is not just a, a military competition where hypersonic missiles versus, you know, ours versus theirs is the measuring stick. It's quantum computing and all these other things. So we're seeing people recognize the problem, but not yet connecting the dot to we need to move out more, more predictably, more steadily on funding not just DOD, but but all, some of the other tools, uh, including in this, in perhaps FMS. And uh, I would personally be very discouraged if we ended up in son of budget control act uh, that we would be able to, that we would be able to do that and talk about what, do what, what what I've just described as being a more robust, steady, you know, a well-funded effort. Uh, and it was a, a great cyber discussion uh, with Frank Kendall, uh, Angus King, uh, with Air Force Secretary Ken, uh, uh, Kendall, Angus King, the main uh, Republican Senator co-chair of the Cyber uh, Solarium Commission 2.0, mm -hmm. um, uh, General Nakasone of uh, Cyber Command and NSA Director, as well as Booz Allen Hamilton. It was a fascinating discussion. Uh, and I thought that Senator King made a great, you know, Secretary Kendall made a great point that we have to um, look at cyber defenses as, as foundational. And then uh, Senator uh, King saying, look, the nature, you know, warfare may be very different in the future. I, I want to take you uh, to lightning, Ron, very briefly ask you a cyber question, even though I don't want to uh, necessarily get bogged down in this. The administration is, is doing a, both on the software and hardware side an assessment of uh, bills of origin and materials to sort of get an understanding of how much Chinese or Russian or foreign componentry and software may exist in that ecosystem. It's a very important effort. But unfortunately, if you're, you're, your house is revealed to be riven with termites, you're going to have to get rid of those termites, and that may be very costly. Do you guys have any sense on the magnitude of the potential cost that might be associated with the discovery of what could be uncomfortable truths, to put it mildly? I can't put a number on, on what our cyber vulnerabilities are, but I agree that we have to address them because we can't just play offense. We have to play defense. We've got a lot of industrial-based partners in, in, in the DIB and the CMMC initiative of the Trump administration I thought was a good step in the direction to, 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 to shore up our defense on that. So we need to get after that, and uh, it, it's an important part of, uh, of conflict. Even, even if you don't have an, a, a solid number on that yet? 
That's correct. I mean, we don't always have perfect information. We have we have ability to, re to readjust as we get more information. Um, and we'll be talking to members of Congress because there does seem to be support to say, hey, look, if we have to resource this, let's figure out a way to resource it uh, to try to um, uh, help on that. Well, let me take you really quickly to two final questions. Uh, PPBE, uh, Bob Hale, uh, your former boss, uh, and you uh, succeeded him as Pentagon Comptroller in the Obama administration as the chairman uh, of the pro program planning uh, budget execution reform panel. For some, it is the source of all evil. For others, uh, it's a system that works remarkably well if you know how to use the system. From your standpoint, what's the input uh, that you're putting into the commission? Uh, because there are mixed reviews. Some people are saying it goes well. Some people are saying it's going less well. From your standpoint, what's the input you want to put into this as somebody who's lived within the system for decades? Yeah, I would say that we, PPB, we got to talk about whether it needs to be reformed. It's, it can't really be replaced. I mean, we have to have a process to reconcile the ground up and the top down, the, you know, the ground up, bottom up uh, needs from the top down, what are the secretaries and deputies' priorities in a way that, that, that takes into account the needs of so many stakeholders that we have inside the building, let alone outside the building. So we need a process to work through all of that and make good choices. Um, the main point I've made in talking to members is that um, we need to talk, and the commission's a good venue for this, about where to take risk. If, if you want to move faster, and this, this PPB the commission, I think, is about agility. It's not about the top line. It's about agility, right, or our processes serving us well. If you want to move faster, I mean, my life, life experiences, that means there's going to be taking some risk if you want to go faster. And so where do we want to take that risk? Do we want to take it in software but not hardware, in non-NDAPs but, but, but not MDAPs? That's what I've said to both committee, the Armed Services Committees and, and to the Commission is we need to have a conversation, and there's clearly different perspectives. The acquisition community has a different perspective from mine, and authorizers have a different perspective from appropriators about what is what right looks like. But I think it's a good conversation to have. There's a great group of people in that Commission, and uh, we look forward to working with them. Uh, let me ask you one last question about auditing, which is also every single interview I've ever done with you has ended with this. Uh, obviously, uh, there's still a lot of unaccounted for uh, property. It's been getting better, but still not good enough. What, what do you have to say about this? Because a couple of years ago, it did get close. We, we did think we were getting close to auditability, and we've clearly fallen short. What's your... Uh, takeaway and lesson here. Yeah, this is going to be a long uh, and probably frustrating process. We did not make the progress this last year that I wanted or that the secretary or the deputy wanted, uh, but we are going to keep after it. That is my clear my clear guidance from my two bosses is we're going to keep after this. And we, have, we, we did see some real pockets of progress last year in terms of replacing systems with systems that are more audit compliant, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work by, by thousands of people, not just by the few people in my office that are working this. Um, one of the things that I've really tried to stress to our financial management community, which is about 50,000 of the 3 million DOD employees, is look at what happened in Ukraine, where we have people who, who need to know, we need to know exactly what we have to, to know what we can afford to give them, where it is, how we can get it there quickly. And when we're in these meetings I've described with the secretary, he doesn't ask us, well, about how many javelins do we have and about where are they and about when will they get there, right? The, the question is exactly how many do we have exactly what condition and exactly when can we get them over there to our partners and so that I think has been a good teachable moment that I'm trying to bring out to our people of imagine that was our men and women in uniform in a fight with a with someone a peer competitor who who were days away from being out of something we haven't really had to think that way uh, we have the Ukraine fight, I want to be clear, has not revealed the case where we don't know where the ammunition that we want to give the Ukraine. That has not been our problem. 
but it is indicative of the fact that knowing where your property is is not just an audit issue and being, you know, being able to account for it and, and have good information at your fingertips is, is, is vital. And so the audit does tie to the larger business process thing. And, and, and you know, our Deputy Secretary, Kath Hicks, is all about data, AI, you know, better processes, JADC2, which was mentioned, is probably the, the crown jewel of that, but the audit is, is, is a cousin of that in terms of being able to use information at better speed to, to enable us to operate more, more, more you know, adeptly. Are you using as much AI as you'd like to in this process? No. I would say that we, are, uh, we have a system that you may have heard of called Advana that really came from my community and is now broadened out. It's been actually youth, very useful in both the Ukraine and, and Afghan uh, missions that, that, I came, that I fell in on as I got back here. It's, it's, but it's, it's sort of what I would call a version 1.0 of where Deputy Secretary Hicks wants us to go in terms of breadth, speed, of uh, so-called flat plane of glass. We're not, we're not going there, but this, this, is the, this is the first step on that journey. Sir, always an honor and pleasure. Thanks so very much for uh, spending so much time with us and look forward to having you back on again soon. Okay, thank you much, Paco. Good to see you again. That was fucking awesome. All right. Thanks, man. man. We got to hustle, right?